0: We're going to talk about overcoming strongholds, overcoming strongholds. And I have two texts of scripture I'd like to sort of weave together. The first is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Do you mind standing to read the, to honor the reading of God's word? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, overcoming strongholds. A stronghold is something that is strong that holds something. How about that? All right. It's something that is strong, and inside the strength of the walls can be something really good, like righteousness, a stronghold of righteousness, or it could be something not so good. Okay? And when Paul uses the word here in 2 Corinthians 10, well, you'll see what he's talking about. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Now I, Paul myself, I, Paul myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence am lowly among you and he says when i'm when i'm with you i'm i'm lowly but being absent i'm bold toward you but i beg you that when i am present i may not be bold with that confidence by which i intend to be bold against someone i'm going to i'm going to explain that in just a minute so don't get confused there uh, against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. It's like I got some people who think I'm, I'm not as spiritual as they should think. And verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare. How many of you can just say sometimes life feels like a battle, right? Yeah, it just feels like a battle. That's what Paul's talking about. He says for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal they are mighty in God for pulling down and here's our word strongholds for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments in every high thing that uh, that's talking about our thoughts every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, instead of living out of a lifestyle of disobedience, we're gonna punish that disobedience and we're gonna live an obedient life so that the destiny of our life can be be good. Also from the text in John chapter 10 verse 10, if you don't have this one memorized, this will be a really good verse to memorize. Have it on your refrigerator. Uh, The thief, Oh, this is daring, because I don't know your personality. This is daring. Read this one out loud with me, with enthusiasm, all right? Can you do it? I know it's a challenge. Get you out of your comfort zone. Okay, let's do it. Ready, go. The thief does not come except to and to, and to, but I, talking about Jesus, I say it, have come that they may have and that they may have it. What? Yeah. Jesus came that we could have life more abundantly. And this, dear friends, is God's word. You can be seated. I wish my wife, Beck, were able to be with us today. She's just the love of my life. She's amazing. She's actually preaching at a conference in South Carolina this weekend. Um, and we are just ridiculously, romantically in love with one another. It's just crazy. But I will tell you, it has not always been that way. The problem with my marriage 40 years ago was a stronghold. Um, I got married when I was 21, Beck was 20, and it was terrible. We, We were saved. We were filled with the Holy Spirit. We were pastoring a church in Leeds, Alabama, but we were living a secret kind of a life that was like, oh my goodness, please don't let anybody know how much we don't enjoy being married to one another. It was a stronghold because it was an area of life that we just did not believe God was engaged in. We believed God in so many areas of our life. We believed that God could heal the sick. We believed that God was going to help us build a church. We believed all kinds of things. But this particular area of our life, we felt hopeless. We felt, we felt like God had no, I, no participation in this particular in our marriage and uh, we hurt one another I mean I'll just tell you more than you want to know about this we, we we hurt one another with our words and with our behavior and rather than work through the hurts because every relationship has hurts but rather than work through the hurts we actually started living out of the hurts we, we lived in our marriage like we were wounded all the time and and we settled into this dysfunctional marriage, we settled into it and just decided that would be normal for us. We just decided we'll have a problem marriage, people have problems in their marriage, we'll live like this for the, for the rest of our life. But the truth is, it kept getting worse and worse and we couldn't stop the destruction. We had no control over, over the slide, the, the, the erosion of our marriage. What what I'd like you to understand about strongholds and hurts is that they have the capacity, they actually have the propensity to develop an interplay with spiritual forces. Um, a root of bitterness, right? You keep a root of bitterness too long and it causes trouble, the Bible says. So if you're living in a wound or a hurt or a dysfunction for a long period of time, it actually attracts spiritual forces that begin to influence and sometimes even manipulate your, your life. And that's what was happening. We actually had demonic powers that were enforcing the dysfunction of our marriage. We were living with a lot of lives. The lives, you know, the lives had to do with like, oh, no, We're going to be stuck with one another the rest of our life. I married the wrong person. Oh, no, this is going to be, you know, this is going to destroy our our ministry, whatever. And I'm just, I'm I'm telling you, huge portions of our heart were damaged by this area of our life that we didn't believe God was capable of repairing or restoring. Our worship was infected by, by this. Our faith was infected by this. I mean, we had physical ailments in our body because we were living under such stress at, at, at home. And, and, and one, day, one day, a friend of Beck's just took her, literally an intervention, I guess, and said, "We're going to go pray." And they went to this this um, cabin, and they and they just started praying. And this intercessor, this godly woman in our church, confronted Beck and said something like, "Hey, if Jim never changes." <laughs> Are you just going to live miserable? Because she was blaming me for the bad marriage. I was blaming her for the bad marriage. You know, it's like If Jim never changes, are you just going to stay miserable the rest of your life? I mean, why would you do that? Things can change. And she began to speak into, into Beck's heart and literally prayed. I, I, I don't know if this is spooky for you or not, but prayed a deliverance prayer over my wife. And there were literally manifestations of freedom that began to break into my wife's heart. So when she came home, she said, Jim, I need to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you. And what she said to me was, Jim, I still don't love you. And I don't even want to love you. But for the first time, I want to want to love you. And that was enough to begin, frankly, a new trajectory of, what should I call it, freedom in our marriage. We became, we became free and over, you know, it didn't, didn't happen in minutes, but it happened in months, and, and we're still growing our relationship with one another. But I've come to tell you today, to remind you, I'm sure you know this, I want to remind you that Jesus came to, gave, to give to the earth a very particular kind of life. In the text that we read, he calls it abundant life. In other places, the Bible calls it eternal life. But when it talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about a life that goes on and on and on, it's talking about the kind of life that carries the attributes of God. Eternality is what God is, God is eternal. So when we say, we're gonna receive eternal life, oh my goodness, y'all, this is crazy. What we're actually talking about bringing into our, our body, our life, what we're talking about bringing into the episodes of our life, is the life of Jesus Christ. His life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes into us. And what John screams and what the gospel is all about is you, you don't have to live the same way everybody else is living. Jesus comes to bring an abundant, eternal, the life of God to actually operate in the vessels that we're in our arms and our legs and our, our head and our heart, the, the eternal. A life of God. That's what the gospel is. That, that's what it is. And, and yet, and yet, John is honest enough to say, but there's a thief. There's a thief. And the thief, the thief is doing everything within his power to rob us from that life, to steal that life, to kill that life, and And that's what was happening in our marriage. Our theology was not the problem. We believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. We knew all about the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. We we knew all about heaven and hell. Our theology was not the problem. The problem was our lifestyle. What we believed was not working its way into the episodes and circumstances of our life. You know, I love it when when david writes the psalms and he says things like he that dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty i will say of the lord he is my refuge and my strength and i would just, i'd like to i would like to propose to you that when david writes those words he's not just giving out data. He's not just announcing a doctrine that he wants the Hebrew people to believe. He actually believes that God is his refuge, that God is his shelter and his help. And no matter if he's getting chased by Saul, if he's facing Goliath, whatever's going on in his life, this doctrine has worked its way into the life of David, and he's he's living an abundant kind of a life because what's true has displaced all the things that were untrue in his life. This is making any sense to you at all? See? And and you know, you could go through a lot of people like Paul, he writes a lot of the Bible, right? And and he says in one place he's good. What would ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? And he puts all these like tribulations, the answer is no, distress, persecution, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sores, like think of anything that is bad. I know anything in the past, anything in the future. He's like, nothing, nothing, nothing It's going to separate me from the love of God. He says, no, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. And again, the idea is not that he's preparing for a sermon to preach to the Roman church. He's not trying to write a book and sell it. This is what actually drives his life. This is like, this is like the foundation of who he is. He's like, listen, I can face anything because nothing is going to separate. Do you understand that there's a difference between coming to church on Sunday and having the kind of abundant life that fuels you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and, you know, every area of your life. See, there's some things that we believe that we have to activate into the into the way we're living well I guess the point is it's not enough just to study about abundant life let's actually live it right let's actually live it so so back to the text um, here's what's going on in Corinthians the Corinthian church is a spectacular church um, they have more signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the spirit than any of the other churches they're brilliant it's a brilliant church but even with all their spiritual gifts, they're not really advancing in the abundant life. That's why Paul has to write to them about learning to love one another. That's why he has to talk a, a lot about their character and having unity and all that kind of stuff. But what's actually happening in 2 Corinthians 10, this is the big deal. There's a lot of people, in, a few people inside the church who are attacking Paul's ministry. They're, they're like, Paul, we we think that you are doing this for your own gain. We think that you're teaching us false doctrine. We think that you are a carnal Christian. We think that you are not very courageous because you stay away all the time and you never come, you never come and face us face to face. And so all these watch this accusations. These accusations are coming against Paul. And um, Paul, Paul is receiving these arguments, these thoughts, these mindsets, which really is the invitation of the thief to steal Paul's ministry, okay? It's an invitation to kill and destroy the anointing that is on Paul. And so here's what Paul does. When he, when he knows what's going on, and, and he and he sees that these arguments are trying to give the devil strength to hold him back. Notice how I use the word stronghold there. The strength to hold Paul back. Here's what he did. First thing he does is he is he throws his shoulders back, he activates himself. And you might have missed it, but in verse one, it's an interesting phrase. He says. Now I, Paul, myself. Now I, Paul, myself. Now I, Paul, myself. And it's interesting because to this point he's been using group talk because all the ministry in Corinth has been team-based. You've got Apollos, you've got Titus, you've got Paul, you've got all these great spiritual leaders. But now, now that the argument is against him, now that the thoughts are being entertained and, and spreading among the church, Paul rises up, and he says, now I, Paul, myself, and it's like he's feeling this new force, and he's like, I'm not even going to speak on behalf of everybody else right now. I'm speaking on my behalf, and I am serving notice on an unacceptable situation. Devil, you are about to be officially resisted by I, me, Paul, myself. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You know, where where things just come at you, and they come at you, and they come at you. You just let them come at you, and you start living with them, and then something just rises up. Almost makes you want to cuss in a Holy Ghost kind of way. You know, just like, I'm not. I'm not going to tolerate this in my life, in my kids, in my family, in my business. That's what's what's going on with, with, with Paul. And then the second thing that he activates is not only his own spirit, but he activates discernment. He, he knows the difference between what's right and what's wrong. because Here's what he says in verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, though we walk in the flesh, though I've got a body and I'm living in a natural world, he says, I do not war according to the flesh. And this is really the central idea today. He says, he says you need to understand that there's a physical natural realm and there's a spiritual realm as well, and they... They have interplay with one another. What's happening in the spirit realm influences the natural realm. And what happens in the natural realm influences the, the spiritual realm. And I just want to remind you that sometimes it actually is more than a personality conflict. Sometimes it actually is more than just the tension of going to work every day. Sometimes it actually is more than just a bad weather pattern or a pandemic or a prejudice or whatever it is. Sometimes there are demonic forces that fight invitation to come into the episodes of your life and build strong places that can hold your trajectory and your destiny back from what God intended. It keeps you from the abundant life because something has happened in the natural realm that is actually influencing the toxins in your spirit realm. Sometimes it happens in the spirit realm that comes into the toxins of the natural realm. Is that making sense to anybody? so Paul activates himself. He rises up and he says, I am resisting the devil here. I am not going to stand for this. And, and how many of you know that sometimes, do you, do you believe, because I really do, that sometimes the people who get the most from God are those who actually go after it instead of sitting back waiting on it to come to them? I mean, I just think spiritual force is a big deal. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening with Paul. He's like, I'm not gonna sit here and take this. I'm gonna rise up. I'm gonna do something about it. And then the second thing he activates is his discernment. He's like, some things are in the natural realm and some things are in the spiritual realm. And what you guys are talking about right now is happening in both. It's the spirit realm and the natural realm. And the third thing that he activates are these spiritual weapons. And 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 he basically says, Listen, I need to remind you that we're never gonna win this battle with mere with mere natural weapons there's not enough science I love science there's not enough therapy and there's not enough money or education but come on somebody there are some spiritual weapons that are mighty through God for the tearing down of these of these strongholds you say now I just he gave me Paul gave me in this two incredibly useful tools to stay and grow the abundant life. I just wanna show them to you. Number one, he gives us the answer to how strongholds become so strong. How strongholds become so strong. Here's how they become so strong. In verse five, he says, the fuel for the strongholds is what you think, it's what you argue, Anything that comes, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Such an important word, knowledge. Not acknowledgement, like, oh, there you are, I see you, God, there you are. No, no, the knowing, the intimacy with God. He says, anything that's in your life that rises to a high place against intimate knowledge with God, he says that is what fuels the disobedience. That's what fuels the stronghold in in your life. And I think the best example that I know in the whole Bible of somebody who shows us what a stronghold looks like is a guy named Gideon. Do you know that story in the Bible, Gideon, Gideon? It's in Judges chapter 6 if you want to read all the details. But Gideon, the, the story opens with Gideon hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat, and and he's fearful because at any moment, the Midianites, they've got a habit of this, just coming in and stealing his wheat just about the time he gets enough for a meal. And and so, so what has happened to get Gideon in this natural condition is that Israel has stopped, they've stopped worshiping Jehovah. Their heart has turned to idols. Gideon's own father is a priest to an idol named Baal and another idol named Asherah, and um, and Gideon is living in a wine press because the whole land has really stopped putting the Lord first, and there's a natural there's a natural consequence to, to that, you see. Um, I read this, I mean, I saw this, I don't really watch HGTV that much, but I happened to walk in the room and it was on, and I saw um, the little episode where the, the lady had, okay, I don't even like cats, this lady had 80 cats living with her, eight zero, 80 cats living in the same house with her, and she thought that that was okay because she loved cats. She thought that was normal. And a guest came in and said, I just need to let you know your house really stinks. It smells so really bad. And I don't know. That's probably not a great illustration. But the truth is, a lot of us can live what seems like normal lives. But somebody needs to come in and say, "Hey, you know, you don't need, You don't have to live like that. There's a better way. There's an abundant life way to live, and you don't have to live with all this smell in, in in your life. And that's what was happening to Gideon. He was living a dysfunctional. He was using a wine press for something that was never intended to do. But he let it become the new normal. It's like I'll just do. I'll just do my wheat down in the. Down in the wine press, you see, well, God showed up one day for Gideon. I if you're glad God showed up for you one day, yeah, God showed up for Gideon one day, and he said uh, he said, "Hello, mighty man of valor." <gasps> Now, Gideon did not feel like a mighty man of valor. He's hiding in a wine press afraid that the Midianites are gonna come steal his wheat. But that's what God called him. He called him a mighty man of valor. And it's a really technical term. I really like it because it's like you are the secret service of Israel. You are the SEAL team. You know, you 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 are the Border Patrol agents of Israel. You're as bad as they get. You are so bad. Gideon, you're so, you're so tough. And again, I just I'm so thankful for a God who in his mercy, Picks dysfunctional people in dysfunctional episodes and says, "I think I can make something out of you. I think you can be. I, I give you a destiny that goes far beyond what you ask or think." But Gideon, even though he heard what God said over his life, he he had an argument. Remember arguments? He has an argument. He says, "God, if I'm a mighty man of valor and you're on my side, then..." Why am I hiding in this wine press and where are all the miracles that my fathers our fathers talked about and and you know Gideon is just attracting thoughts a mindset that justifies his dysfunction. Oh, I'm getting in your stuff now. How many of you know that when you live in an offense Your mind has the ability to attract the kind of data you need to justify living in the offense. That's what Gideon's doing. He's like, well, you can call me a mighty man of valor, but look at the world I'm living in. Look at the circumstance. Look at at what's going on. And, And yet Gideon interacts with God in a very interesting way. He, he says, okay, God, if you really want me to go to war against the Midianites, then I'm going to put a sheepskin, a fleece. You've heard that. I'm going to put a fleece on the ground. If it's wet, when I wake up in the morning, that'll be a sign that you want me to be a mighty man of valor. And sure enough, it was wet. And so he says, oh, that's really good. But could you do one more thing for me? Tomorrow I'm going to put a fleece on the ground. If it's dry and everything else around it is wet, then I'll know that you want me to be a mighty man of valor. And I just love that God does everything Gideon needs to become a man of trust. He starts, he starts trusting God. He keeps interacting with him. And so here's what Gideon does. He goes to, he's got, uh, he's like, okay, God's on my side. He still goes at night. So he's not, you know, he's not like, he's not rocky yet, okay. He just goes at night. But he goes to his dad's idol safe, he breaks the safe open and he destroys Baal and Asherah and all the idols that his dad has been the priest for. He destroys all of those idols idols and i am telling you that all of a sudden the village went berserk the whole city lareda whatever the city was, it was it went there were rioting in the streets they were so upset but here's what's different this time not only did the did the demons come to town and start going crazy now all of a sudden gideon gideon is awake and he's alive and and he starts he starts saying wait a minute i'm not gonna let i'm not gonna let this happen and uh If you know the story, he went through a big army and he came down to just 300 people and those 300 people changed changed the trajectory of the nation. Now, how do I wanna say this? I think it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to actually declare that Jesus is trustworthy. I think the most important thing that I'm trying to say to you today is that if God's own people don't trust him, in every area of life, we're literally violating the essential matter of the revelation of God. (laughs) We have a revelation of God. We say God loves us. He's good. He's powerful. He can do anything. And yet, if there are God's people who, like Beck and I, we're not trusting him in an episode of our life, in an area of our life, if we we didn't even believe God could do anything to fix our marriage. And when we say to the world or to ourselves or to the spirit realm that we believe God here and here but not here, we are announcing a confusion. And a chaos to a nation that desperately needs a clear revelation of who Jesus is. God's people owe it to God to trust Him because He is trustworthy, and we owe it to trust Him in every area of our life. And if there's an area of our life where where we're not trusting God, Then we're like a little nervous lamb walking around attracting the one that the Bible says is like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. We, we really need to trust God. I have so many stories of strongholds in my life that went away. I don't know why this is one of them and I feel led to tell you about it, but it used to be every October... I would get so depressed, I would get so lonely, I would get so discouraged, I didn't even know why. I mean, it wasn't like bad things happened, it was just like when October came, I got ready to get sad. (laughs) And one day, Beck, it was all, I mean, this was only about two years ago. Beck said, you know, Jesus is still Lord in October. And I was like, you know, you're right. And we just decided that come September, we were going to we were just gonna take over October, and honestly, I I testified to you that October is my favorite month of the year. Now, you know, just it really is. I, I, there's not an area of your life that God cannot rush in and rescue and restore. Come on, somebody, it's time to trust Jesus. So this is the lesson. This is this is really. This is really the lesson. A stronghold begins with a mindset that has an area that says, ah, I trust you here and here and here, but I don't think I can trust you here. And here's the second point, and I'm gonna close with this. We're almost ready to pray. Here's the second point. Paul teaches us how we can break the strongholds so that we can live an abundant life. I wanna read to you the same verse from the Passion Translation because I love the the color of the language. The Passion Translation says, for although we live in the natural realm, We do not wage a military campaign employing human weapons using manipulation to achieve our aims. Instead, our spiritual weapons are energized with divine power to effectively dismantle the defenses behind which people hide. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God. We can break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. We capture like prisoners every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the anointed one. And since we are armed with such dynamic weaponry, we stand ready to do it. I love love Paul's aggression here. You, You know, in another place in the Bible, he lists some of the specific weapons of spiritual warfare. He talks about a belt of truth and a helmet of salvation and a breastplate of righteousness and, uh, you know, all of those things. But can I just tell you, all of those weapons, every spiritual weapon that we know about and the ones we don't know about, they, they trace their way back to this question. Do I trust the Lord? Do I trust the Lord? Do I trust his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his mercy? Do I trust that he's working all things together for good for me because I'm called by him. In, in my marriage, 40 years ago, God raised up an intercessor, a sweet, sweet woman, she was really old, and um, she came to Beck and said, Beck, the Lord tells me to tell you that he's not gonna let you keep living this way anymore. And she confronted our marriage. She confronted the lies. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, she pushed the authority of hope into an area of our life that had been so hopeless. By the help of the Holy Spirit this intercessor pushed the want, not the, not the love yet, it wasn't there, but the want to want to love her husband. It pushed back into Beck's spirit. It, it it began to infiltrate her mind that maybe God could do even this. Maybe God could even heal our marriage. And I'm so thankful because it established a whole new trajectory for our life, for our worship, for our ministry. It became an anchor of our faith. If God can do this, God can do anything. That's kind of the way we begin to think about life. See? And I don't know, I don't know today, the second service, if, if you have an area of your life like what I've described, or like Paul has described, area of arguments, area where there are thoughts that seem stronger than your ability to trust God imaginations that it's like I want to know God, but this and this and this and this. But I I really believe God sent me from Dallas to do for you what that precious intercessor did for Beck. I'd like to just push the Holy Spirit into an area of life that it seems like God hasn't been involved in. And I really believe, I mean, it happened in the first service. There were dozens and dozens of people. I said, I'm not going to tolerate this area of my life being defeating me anymore. I'm going I'm to step into some knowledge of God in this area of my life. And um, and I'm not going to leave and go back to Dallas without praying for you as well, if you'll let me. I just want to close with like some strategies. If you have a stronghold in your life, these are some strategies. This is what worked for us. This is what I think will work for you. Number one, you have to resist the devil. <laughs> You can't just sit back and take it. You have to rise up. You have to do me, myself, I, I am serving notice to this area of my life. I am serving notice that I am officially resisting the devil of officially standing up. That Bible, that verse in James that says resist the devil also says submit to God. Resist the devil, submit to God, and the devil will flee from you. Come on, somebody. If you resist the devil and submit to God, the devil (laughs) and <laughs> so the first step in overcoming a stronghold is just like, okay, it's time. I am not going to live with this in, this to- these toxins in my life anymore. I'm going to be free. This, here's step number two. Find somebody to agree with you. Find an agreement. When, you know, Matthew 19 says, says if two of you agree together as touching anything, they shall ask. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And, and the word agreement, the word agreement means uh, symphony or harmony. So when, when Beck came back from her prayer meeting, um, worship team, why don't you join me? Because I'm really landing this thing right now. Um, when, when Beck came back from her prayer meeting and she says, I don't love you, but I want to want to love you. When she said that, the first thing I did was I said, Amen. I agreed with her. I said, "Okay, let's do whatever it takes. Let's let's put God in this area of our life." And can I just say that when two of you agree, it, it puts to flight, it puts to flight so much, so many of the spiritual forces that are trying to steal things from you. The third thing that I recommend that you do is, um, is just. Create an atmosphere of thanksgiving. How many of you have at least one thing to be thankful for? You're here, right? Be thankful for that. <laughs> yeah. But can I tell you that when you're thankful, when you, when you give God praise with thanksgiving, giving, something happens in the it happens in the earthly realm, but it happens in the spiritual realm. Do you know what happens in the spiritual realm? When you give praise to God, the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. That literally means he establishes his throne, his dominion. He sits down in the midst of your circumstance and says I am going to exert my authority and my rule into the episode of your life. And so a simple thing as giving thanks and sincere praise establishes the the dominion of the Lord over the dominion of the other things that have been operating in your life. So what's the first thing? The first thing is like, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm tired of this dysfunction. <laughs> Number two, I'm going to find somebody that will agree with me that I don't have to live like this anymore. The third thing is to just begin an atmosphere of thanksgiving and praise because that bring, that is an atmosphere that attracts the authority of God. And then the fourth thing is just act, activate your trust. Activate your activate your faith. You say, I've got faith. Yeah, but you have to activate it. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. You know, some people have faith in God. Some people have faith in themselves. Some people have faith in, you know, the medical community or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things to have faith in. But our ultimate faith has to be faith in God. And it must be activated. That's why the Bible says you have to speak to the mountain before it moves. That's why the Bible says... That's so when Jesus told the fisherman to throw it on the other side. Let's just see. Let's just see if you have enough faith to break your routine and throw, throw the net on the other side. You see. So you have to activate your faith. And finally, finally, you have to live out of the revelation that you have about Jesus. Let's say that again. You have to live out of the revelation that you have about Jesus. This is one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. I mean, Jesus gathers his disciples up, and he says, guys, I want to go to Caesarea Philippi for a little while. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a very special place because it literally is demonic headquarters for that entire land, that entire area. The Roman emperors be- became, they became deified at Caesarea Philippi, the Asherah, Baal, they all traced their headquarters to Caesarea Philippi. It was the headwaters of the Jordan River and they just felt like that there was a spiritual flow out of Caesarea Philippi that influenced the whole nation. Jesus had never been to Caesarea Philippi. He would never healed anybody. had never taught no teachings there. They would never been together as a group on this day. He says, come on, we're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. And they go into this occult headquarters and Jesus says, let me ask you guys a question. And he says, who who'd have men say that I Guess it was Peter. Well, they, they gave the politically correct answer. Well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Isaiah, some say you're one of the prophets. Then he made it real personal, and it has to be personal if you're going to be free, y'all. It has to be personal. He says, okay, but what do you say about me? And Peter's like, this was Peter's best moment, y'all. I'm telling you, he is sore. Christ, you're the son of the living God. If everybody said it together, I'm just gonna. I know I'm pushing you, but I want to do it anyway because I can go back. I have a job back in Cedar Hill. I don't need you. I don't need you to like me at all. I just. I don't even need you. One more. One more time. One, two, three. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Come on, say it again. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Jesus freak. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and I'm going to give you Peter the keys to the kingdom so that whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on the earth will have been loosed it will have already been loosed in the heavens oh Peter let's conquer the world you know and I don't know how long it was later five minutes five steps I don't know how long but we never Preachers never preach this next part of that scene. Because here's what happened. As they're walking away from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says, okay, I'm about to go to the cross now and die, and I'll rise three days after that. And Peter goes ballistic. He's like, heck no. You are not going to die. Not as long as I'm breathing. I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus turns. Peter, who had just said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got the keys to the kingdom. You're my rock. I'm going to build a church with you. That guy, that guy, Jesus said, get, do you know this part of the story? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. The guy that had the clearest revelation of who Jesus was, was now propagating the purpose of Satan. The keys to the kingdom is now promoting the will of darkness against, against the Son of God. And here's the rest of the sentence because this is what makes it so clear for me. He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things of men. I feel like the reason that message hit my heart so hard was because during coronavirus, during the during COVID, I was so mindful of the things of men. I was watching the news every day. I was listening to the data. I was listening to all the prognosticators about what's going to happen to the church and whether this happens or that happens. And I'm, I don't know who's right, who's wrong. I don't know. I don't know. It's not, that's not the point. The point is I occupy Totally honest with you, I lost some of my trust in God. I mean, occasions I just lost some of my trust in God. But I believe it is God's will for us to come out of this season of hardship in America. So many things, right? Elections and riots and racial tension and economy and so many things to be mindful of. But how many of you think God is raising up a church in the last days to say God is greater to say that the Christ the son of God, and the gates of hell